John chapter 21, the first 14 verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many... The net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the perfect word of God. May he bless now its imperfect preaching to you. Now is it over? That's what the guy asked. I can't figure out if he knew exactly what he was doing, or maybe he had no idea the reaction this would get. Either way, he'd said it, and the reaction was intense. The entire crowd turned toward him, all eyes on him, shushing, and some were booing, and I saw a couple people throw things at him. Everyone was deeply offended. Now, is it over? The place was the AMC Carolina Pavilion 22. It was December 2003, opening night of the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king. And the guy a few rows in front of me, obviously dragged there by his friends, apparently hadn't read the books. So after the third of Tolkien's endings that isn't the end... He asks in exasperation, now is it over? But Tolkien's story just presses on and on, and if you're me, and on and on and on. The resurrection is the climax of John's gospel. And the book of Acts is the story of the church of Jesus Christ after his ascension. Given this, we might expect John to be pretty economical with his words between those two events. By now, Jesus has revealed his resurrected self to plenty of people, including these disciples already. Verse 14 reminds us this is the third such appearance just in John. So now, is it over? Not quite. As one teacher puts it, a Christian gospel ends properly not just with the appearance of the risen Lord, but with the confident statement that the mission to the world 
the means by which many will be saved, is undertaken at his command and under his authority. John doesn't tell us how much time passed since the scene with Thomas in the upper room. It was enough that the disciples were able to return to Galilee, as both Mark and Matthew record. It's what Jesus told them to do. And as the chapter begins, we see John highlighting connections between this story and what has already taken place in the gospel. The first is the emphasis on the reality of the resurrection. Jesus, John says, reveals himself to the disciples. He manifests his resurrected glory, this time not in the privacy of the upper room, but in the public space, the Sea of Tiberias. And again, there's a minor miracle, a sign that points to him as the risen Son of God. John also drops in little details that emphasize the physicality of the resurrection. Jesus is walking on the shore. He cooks and eats breakfast. The resurrection wasn't just in spirit, but in body. And with all of this documented, when opponents will later speculate that the resurrection was just a myth, they're going to have to contend with a lot of accounts, a multitude of eyewitnesses who have some very specific details about where Jesus was and who saw him and what he did. Just as John 1 told us it would be. And just as Jesus did before the resurrection. The risen Christ manifests the glory that he shares with the Father to all who see him. Revealed himself is used twice in verse 1. That's not just presenting himself that he's alive. It's as another pastor writes, it's proving his continuing power and love, proving his divine majesty and tender sympathy. He's showing to them with evidences that it's the same Jesus as before. He is risen. And as clear as all these connections are to what has come before, this report is also filled with important connections to what comes next in Christianity. There, the disciples will take a leading role, spreading the good news and cultivating the church that Jesus established on their glorious testimonies. What's left in John are several interactions where Jesus is preparing his disciples for ministry. Next week, verses 15 to 19, is the reconciliation of Peter. Jesus teaches about the heart of a minister. Feed my lambs. In verses 20 to 23, he'll teach Peter and John together that service to Christ should rise above earthly concerns and comparisons. Participating in the work that happens when the gospel comes into people's lives has its ups and its downs, you see. That's true whether the gospel is working in us, in people around us, or in the church at large. It's true for ministers and elders, and it's true for faithful Christians trying to live in response to the gospel and to share their faith with those around them. The Christian life has its ups and its downs. Sometimes it's joy to the soul. We see it. We we experience good fruit and good returns for our efforts. And sometimes it's very difficult. 
It appears the work of the gospel in us and others is slow or thankless. And sometimes it appears even ineffective. Sometimes it feels like a blessing. And sometimes having to do the work of responding to the gospel just feels like an unfair burden. Why do I have to do all this? This story about fishing serves as a kind of living parable for what awaits the disciples in ministry. They're back in Galilee, and Peter, who's often a representative of the group, steps to the front of the stage. The Holy Spirit hasn't yet fallen at Pentecost, so this group is not too heavenly-minded. When Peter steps forward to speak, he says, Want to go fishing? And everyone says, Sure, we'll go fishing. And off they go. It's hard to imagine this story taking place in Acts after Pentecost. I think they had more important things to do. Many of these men had been fishermen before they started following Jesus. But follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. They had no idea then what Jesus had in store for them. They still don't. But fishing has always been a good analogy for the work. These disciples get on the boat and they go out onto the sea as experienced and trained fishermen. They have all the right tools. They go at the right time of day, which for the Sea of Tiberias is actually at night. And they catch nothing. This is no coincidence. It's a lesson for them to prepare them for ministry. Perhaps for fishing, they lack nothing. But for ministry... They lack the most important thing. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What can the disciples do apart from Christ? With all their skill and experience and training and equipment and timing, what can the disciples do apart from Christ? Nothing. Successful ministry requires the power of Christ. Once before, it's in Luke 5, these same disciples, many of them, had fished all night and had caught nothing. And Jesus came on the scene and they'd already given up at that point. They were washing their nets. They were done for the day. And Jesus, now with them, told them to throw the nets out again. And they do and they bring in a tremendous haul of fish. And now here again, years later, Jesus repeats the same real-time parable, the same lesson. No Jesus, no success. You think Peter would remember this? You think Peter would have gotten this by now, the lesson he should have learned from cutting off the servant's ear in the garden? When you act in your own power, nothing good happens. After a long night of fishing futility, Jesus enters the scene. It's not quite light. So even when he addresses them sympathetically, they don't know that it's him. It's just a shadowy figure on the shore. And he calls out, boys. He uses that word, boys. You've caught nothing all night, have you? I love another teacher's paraphrase of this. Lads, without me, you can do nothing. Please learn that lesson once and for all. And now I will show you how to catch some fish. And they obey, and the nets come back full. 
But the main purpose of this miracle is not to fill their nets with fish. It's to fill their hearts with faith. They're going to accomplish great things for God. And to do so, they've got to learn that it will only happen when they abide in Christ. Is it any less true for us? Whatever good we want to do for the kingdom of God, whatever holy change we want to see in ourselves, whatever godly impact we want to have on others, apart from him, we can do nothing. This is why success in response to the gospel is not measured by outcomes, but by faithfulness. We measure progress not by, am I successful, but am I faithful? What appears to be success, but come by another means than Jesus' power, is deceptive, fleeting, or both. With the gospel at work in us, more faithfulness can always be produced. The earthly results of that faithfulness, I don't know. Those belong only to God. The fact that the disciples' result is a net overflowing with fish is how in verse 7 John knows that the man on the shore is Jesus. He puts it together immediately and says, It is the Lord to Peter. Though it does all seem too good to be true, this whole resurrection thing really seemed too good to be true for the disciples. You notice even in verse 12, after they've come on shore, they're standing with him and he's cooking them breakfast. They still struggle to believe that he is risen. They want to ask him, can this be, is this really you? But then they think, no one else could have revealed himself in this power and love. No one else could have done the things that he is doing. It must be the Christ. And so they can't even raise the question because they're starting to understand he alone is the true vine. And besides Christ's power, they also need Christ's direction. Now, while remembering that this is an analogy, it's not meant to be pressed too far, I think we can still reasonably make the additional connection. Because Jesus doesn't just tell them to keep fishing or to try again or to try harder. He tells them exactly what to do, where to fish, how to fish so that their labors can be effective. And for life and ministry that carries out the gospel's purpose in us, we need direction from Christ. The disciples informed now by hours of their own failure, no doubt knew this to be true. They don't even put up the slightest fight to some man on the shore telling them where to put their nets. You can certainly imagine a scenario where in pride they reject that direct instruction. We know how to fish. They're just not out here tonight to be caught. Or a scenario where they demand success by their own devices and plans. We don't even want fish if we have to listen to somebody else. I'm sure none of you are ever that stubborn. I'm just talking about myself here. We don't have to imagine that. We really don't. At the church level, churches with a great desire to reach the world make themselves like the world in order to win the world's favor. One by one, the means that God has given, preaching, prayer, sacraments, are replaced with the means that they believe can draw a crowd and keep people engaged. Individuals, people like you and me, 
We think that we have devised the right approach to reach the lost in our lives. Ours is a unique situation, you see. The words of the Bible or an invitation to worship or persistence in prayer, those will never work. We need a different strategy. In life and ministry, we set aside Christ's direction for our own plan and our own way. We want to gracelessly confront someone with the error of their ways and demand a personal change. Or we want to be so relational, show them, don't tell them your faith, that the need to be saved from God's wrath against sin just never seems to come up year after year after year. Yes, it's an analogy from a fishing story, and we shouldn't take it very far. But the disciples' direct obedience to Jesus' way is what leads to success and blessing. Not just his power, but also his way. Those will be the keys to the disciples' own personal transformation and to the success of the ministry of the church. There's another connection to what comes next in the story. Another need for success in response to the gospel. And it's evident in the dynamic between John and Peter. This was evident before if you read backwards and think about the empty tomb and some other circumstances. But it's really highlighted here and highlighted as a positive. In verses 7 and 8, as usual, John is quick to understand and Peter is quick with action. Whichever kind we are. We need the presence of the other involved in our spiritual growth. And the church needs both kinds, all kinds. John, who quickly connects the success in the nets with the man on the shore, he comes to the theological conclusion of truth. And Peter, who just goes, Peter, hearing what is true, dives right in. John and the other disciples are a little more orderly, They pull the nets close to the boat. They row to the shore. Their faithfulness is expressed in commitment to the details of getting things done that needed to be done. Peter's faithfulness is in his zeal, his eagerness to be with the Lord. The church needs both Martha and Mary, Peter and John. The church needs all kinds. As one pastor put it, in the kingdom of God, the person of action and the person of vision complement one another. John has deep affection for Christ. He loves Jesus. Remember in the upper room? It was John who was laying back with his head reclining on Jesus' chest. But here John also sees that there's some work to be done. Peter is exuberant. He's he's not denying that he would help with these other things. He'll go get the nets later when he's asked to. But he just dives right in. David wrote in the Psalms that familiar line, zeal for your house consumed me. You know that's written in the context of David being persecuted by people who thought his religion was way over the top who thought his excitement for God and his worship was just a bit too much, needed to tone that down. I wonder what those guys persecuting David would have thought of Peter, half naked, diving in to swim the hundred yards to the shore just to be closer to Jesus. I think Paul explains this need to the Corinthians. 
He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, so it is with Christ. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts of the body that we think are less honorable, God bestows the greater honor. God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. The church would never become what Christ called it to be without John and Peter. And no church serves Christ well when its members think of themselves only as individuals and not as parts carefully selected by God to belong to the whole. Now, the final forward-looking connection I'll point out from this morning's passage should offer us some great relief. Because without it, we could look at how much work there is to be done in personal and corporate ministry, and we could feel like a heavy burden has been placed on us. There's a lot to do becoming sanctified. There's a lot to do attacking the gates of hell with the church of Jesus Christ. It's a lot of work. And it could feel like a heavy burden. But as with the disciples' fishing expedition, God's success is not limited by our capabilities. On their own, of course, the disciples were able to catch nothing. And then with Jesus' power and direction, they come back to shore with a net full of fish. But don't miss the fact that Jesus did not need their catch. Breakfast is already cooking Christians, the Lord can always provide for his people out of his own stores. And frankly, it's very often when we admit and acknowledge that we don't have it within us, we can't make it, we can't produce it, we can't get this done, that the Lord produces out of his own abundance. Yes, he blesses us by giving us participation in his work. And he gives us the power and the direction we need to do to serve his will. But make no mistake, God does not depend on us. By the time the disciples arrive at the shore in verse 9, breakfast is already cooking. Looking at the results in our own lives and in the church where the nets aren't always full, we will be tempted to discouragement. We'll look at the results and think that we're letting God down in our own lives and in ministry. We're failing to produce what's expected, what we know his power can deliver. But Christian, he's already provided all we need. He has an overabundance of righteousness just as much as fish. The triumph of the church just as much as fish. In fact, I can't think of any reason 
why John goes back to how many fish there are, this time specifying a number, 153. I can't think of any reason he does that except to remind us that we should never doubt God's capacity to work extravagantly. There is no limit of what God will do in us or in the ministry of his church, and his nets are always big enough to handle it. No fish looks like a problem not for the power of God. Too many fish for the nets. (laughs) Looks like a problem, but not for the power of God. One heady and emotionally reserved disciple and one exuberant hothead looks like a problem, (laughs) not for the power of God. That's the lesson the disciples need to learn, and I hope we're hearing it too. That despite appearances and circumstances, our confidence, not in ourselves, but in the power of God, is what allows us to rest in joyful peace. Remember, it was just a few days ago, just a few pages ago, that the dead body of Christ was buried in a tomb. And it looked like a problem. Not for the power of God. He's risen. Amen.